Well, if you guys have any questions about the annual meeting, please don't hesitate to ask. Again, it is tonight. All are welcome. And all uh, Wes was pointing out is if you hadn't signed up for the dinner, then there may not be enough food, right, because we just ordered enough for those who signed up. But you're still welcome to come. You can bring a dinner. Or you can hang out until the end and see if there's enough left over. Because sometimes he brings a little extra, and you can have it, okay? All right, but we'd like you to be there if you can, certainly to celebrate another year of God's grace and this ministry, and which is his ministry. Talk about it. We have some business matters to address, and, and that as well, and we'll do that. Um, but let's get into the Word of God together. So we are in Titus. We are in chapter 1. We are in the beginning of chapter 1. And if you're not already there, you can turn You can uh, turn in your Bible there. I would invite you to do that. Or you can pick up one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seat around you. There, you could turn to page 998 in that Bible. That should bring you there to the letter to Titus by the Apostle Paul. Here's what I want to do. I want to, this is a part two, so we started in this last week, but I wanted to start off this way. I wanted to read to you a typical, a typical salutation or greeting of one of Paul's New Testament letters, more typical, more common that we find as we read through uh, the New Testament letters written by Paul. Here it is, and then I think what it'll, it'll help you see how drastically different the one is that we're looking at here in Titus. So here's a typical salutation or greeting, which was customary to start a letter with in ancient times. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he identifies himself as the writer, who he is, and then he identifies the readers of the letter, or the primary target audience. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, In Christ Jesus. And then he extends this warm greeting Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a very typical, common greeting from the Apostle Paul. Now, Titus. So you can see the difference. Verse 1 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That sounds familiar. It sounds fairly similar to what we just heard in Ephesians. But now the expansion of the salutation. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness or leads to godliness, as I pointed out last week is another way to translate that. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And then verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So as I I was saying last Sunday, we begin to take a closer look at this section of Titus. This salutation stands out. And hopefully you can see that now from the other salutations found in most of Paul's other New Testament letters due to the extra material uh, or statements that are contained within it, which is why I've uh, called it now a striking salutation. I changed it last week. It was called a a grand greeting, but I changed the 
would be more appropriate, a striking salutation. In addition, this extra material is very rich, theologically speaking, very rich. And it is this rich material that we're taking a little time before we move on to the body of the letter to focus on, all right? That's what we're doing. That's where we are. We started on that last week. So last Sunday, we, we only considered verse 1. The Apostle Paul, and I just want to do a little bit of review because it is so rich, so important that we not just, I don't know, quickly move over these truths that Paul includes here in this great letter. So in verse 1, the Apostle Paul, this is review, Apostle Paul, as a faithful and loyal servant of the one and only true God, was concerned about and lived to help bring about saving faith among God's elect. Yet, it was not only that, but along with that, connected to that, necessarily so, was also his desire to further instruct and educate the elect, the chosen children of God, to educate them in and correctly organize them around the knowledge of the truth about God and all his work in Jesus Christ. Why? Why? To simply fill their heads with facts about their faith? To make them really good at Bible trivia? No, but as we discussed last, last week, it was because, or is because, that very knowledge, that very knowledge, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the gospel, that very knowledge, biblical knowledge, the knowledge that's been revealed to us here in the word, that very knowledge, when genuinely and properly received, leads the chosen, repentant, believing, and born-again child of God to godliness or to true godly living or, to say it another way, conforms them gradually over time into the image of their glorious and righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of that, beloved, all of that aligns perfectly with God's purpose in sovereignly and mercifully choosing a large number of men and women from among the masses of humanity for salvation and then sending his beloved son to this earth to suffer and die in their place. So listen, dear Christians. God elected you unto salvation so that you would be holy and blameless before him. So that you would depart from sin. Hmm? Yeah? No. Yeah? Yes. And walk in righteousness. 
That's why he chose you to be his. That you would turn from all of your foolish rebellion. All of it. And live fully in submission to your loving, merciful, and glorious creator. So that all of you and all that you do would be pleasing to God. Are you aligned with God's purposes in saving you? Are you? God wants his people to properly, and if you are, praise be to God, okay? Let me just say that. And I'm not asking because I think you're not. I'm just asking because it's the right thing for me to do up here, to challenge you. Certainly there are some here that are not, I would imagine. And maybe you are not to the degree that you should be, aligning yourself with God's purpose in saving you, choosing you to be his. Paul was aligned with that purpose. Yeah? God wants his people to properly and accurately reflect him. Right? In whose image they have been made. But that sin, sin has terribly distorted and twisted. However, uh, a watered-down gospel message and easy believism has unfortunately produced, in my opinion, a great number of folks who think salvation is, for the most part, unrelated to their conduct or behavior. Maybe that's you here today. Which may have been the case on the island of Crete as well. Not that they had a watered-down gospel per se, but they didn't understand the fullness of it yet. They needed to be instructed. They certainly had an immoral climate that they lived in, culture. But as I said before in the introduction of Titus, they may have been confused about these matters as well. We can draw that out from the letter and what's being addressed in there. That salvation only applied to escape from eternal wrath. No, it's much more. As I said before, God didn't save you just so that you could escape wrath. That's do you. Certainly, it includes that. But he saved you for even much grander purposes, to be made like his beloved son. To be perfected. To have sin rooted out of your life entirely. There are those who profess to know God or be saved, but missing from their lives, beloved, is a real pursuit of godliness or a driving passion to be like Jesus. That God has not elected people to salvation so that they can go on living as if the righteous Lord is not their master or as if their sinfulness or ungodliness is not a big deal. It is a big deal. Christ died on the cross to set you free from it. One writer, and remember, as I told you, this introduction or this, uh, I should say, salutation of the letter really sets the stage for the remainder of the letter, the body of the letter. That's why I think 
Paul is dipping into these theological truths here now. One writer says, the truth of the gospel changes a life from ungodliness to holy living. Or at least it should. If it's being received, it should. We'll see that when we get to chapter 2, verse 12. He goes on to say, if the faith, knowledge, and godliness of God's elect was the concern for the apostle, should such a concern be any less true for us? Huh? Well, that's Paul's thing, not mine. What? Really? One writer says, this progression of faith to knowledge, to godliness, as we see here, should be a pattern for every Christian. Right? Believing, growing in the truth, and growing in the truth that leads to godliness. It should be both in living their lives and in giving their lives in the communication of the gospel. That means we should be following this pattern and we should be helping others toward that pattern. Huh? Making disciples. Not just making converts, not just having people profess faith, but then grow in knowledge and become like Christ. That's, that is it, guys. That is it in a nutshell, why we're, why we're here, what the church is supposed to do. The pattern of our lives as followers of Christ should be, should be, should be a pursuit of godliness and an active looking to bring all the elect of God in the world into the same pattern. This is God's will for the Christian. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? This is God's will for you. Chasing after Christ's likeness and helping and encouraging all God's chosen ones to do the same. Are you chasing after Christ-likeness? Are you helping your brothers and sisters to chase after Christ-likeness? That's all review. All right. You guys are too serious this morning. Don't be so serious. But it is serious, isn't it? It's a serious matter. Do we chase after Christ-likeness? Are we helping others to do the same? Are we joining others or calling others to join us in the chase? Huh? Man, we chase after a lot of stuff that's not good. Are we chasing after Christ-likeness? You know, in order to chase after Christ-likeness, you're going to have to run away from some other stuff. Picking up where we left off. Back to verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness or which leads to godliness. And then he says, in hope of eternal life, in hope of eternal life. This next phrase right here, in hope of eternal life, could be understood to strictly be modifying In other words, what's it connected with in these statements here? Because it's really just one long statement. It could be understood to strictly be modifying Paul's apostleship. Paul's apostleship. 
Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and now he's picking back up in hope of eternal life. So in that case, it would mean the Apostle Paul's service for God, then, is built upon the hope of eternal life. Or, or it could be that Paul intended it, that statement, in hope of eternal life, to modify the faith and the knowledge of the truth of God's elect, which is how the translators of the NIV 84 interpret the passage, and so added words to verse 2 that are not there in the original, but they added some words to communicate that specific idea in their translation because they believe that's what Paul is intending. So you see that in the NIV. It says that this way, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. In trying to make a decision one way or another, one commentator, you know, what, what is it meant to modify? Is it meant to modify apostle, his apostleship? Is it meant to modify the Christian's faith and their knowledge of the truth? One writer says, restricting the application of this phrase to Paul's apostleship unnecessarily limits Paul's thought, particularly since it appears to be the starting point for his statements that follow, which we'll look at in a second. Having already mentioned faith and knowledge with regard to his apostleship, Paul also noted that these elements are based on the hope of eternal life. I would tend to agree with that. I, think it's, uh, I don't think it's wise to limit it specifically just to apostleship. I certainly think it includes faith and knowledge, that, that statement. Another writer, and this is where I would land, says this, it seems best to connect it with all that has gone before, this phrase, the hope of eternal life. It is the basis, the hope of eternal life, on which the superstructure of Christian faith and service is built, right? So you have the hope of eternal life, that's a structure, that's the foundation on top of, or that's the building, and on top of that building rests the Christian's faith, the Christian's service, the Christian's knowledge, it all rests on that. As with all of God's elect, Paul's life and service were firmly rooted in hope, which eagerly and confidently awaits the realization of eternal life, of eternal life. Now, this writer goes on to point out, and it's worth saying, that believers already possess eternal life. We already have it. John 5, 24, but its full and perfect realization awaits the return of the Prince of Life, of the Prince of Life. We will know eternal life in its fullness when our Prince returns for us and we are with him. So we have eternal life, but the full manifestation of that life is yet to come. But the writer also points out that this biblical hope that we have is, uh, is a confidently awaiting the realization of, we are confidently awaiting the realization of eternal life. Is that true? Are we confident about this eternal life that awaits us and the fullness of it and the Prince of Peace coming for us? Are we confident about that? Are we? Yes? 
Is it foolish to be confident about such things? Certainly not. It's certainly not. Boy, there's some things people are confident about, and it is very foolish. You know? Like that they'll be here tomorrow. They'll have more time to make a decision for Christ. That's foolish confidence. Maybe today's your last day. That Social Security will be there when they retire. See the similarities? Yeah. No, it is, uh, it is not foolish, beloved, to be confident in the hope of eternal life for the one who believes in Christ and trusts in him and is following him. It is not foolish at all. And Paul makes that point in Titus 1-2. He says, in hope of eternal life, and adds these, these, this statement, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. Wow. I'm just telling you, there's a lot. I and mean, we're not even, we're just kind of dipping our toes into this theological richness and the depth of it. It goes way, way down. But uh, there's a lot there. Paul's use of this expression, one writer points out, who never lies with reference to God's character, never lies, really has a a twofold effect in this passage, right? So the first, I think, is probably obvious. Uh, It establishes for us then the certainty of the hope of eternal life, right? Because it's, it's grounded in, it's rooted in the character of our God. And he, unlike most people we know, for that matter, you know, even us from time to time, probably lie. This is what we know. People lie. But not our God. He never lies. He cannot lie. He cannot lie. And so that gives us a certainty that this hope that he has promised us will actually come to fruition. It will be realized. But secondarily, I think it's Paul's uh, little, he gives a little nudge, you know, like a, I'm trying to think of, like a little stab. I don't know, like a little, ooh, what is it? Huh? Jab. Yeah, but that's not the right, like, culturally cool way to say it. Huh? Burn? Well, you're way back. That's 80s, baby. What are you talking about? Anyway, it doesn't matter. You get the idea. But Paul's use of the term here, who, who never lies with reference to God, as one writer points out, it, it really then offers a stark contrast to the lying character of the Cretans, to those, to those where they live in that culture. Uh, the Cretans, those who live on the island, the islanders there. Well, how do we know they're liars? Well, Paul notes it in the letter. In uh, chapter 1, just a few ways, verses 12 through 13, he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How would you like to be characterized by those terms? And then he says, this testimony is true. 
Now, he, we'll get there. He's not, he's not talking about the church. Uh, he's talking about he's applying this to the false teachers that are there causing all kinds of problems among them. But uh, Cretans had a reputation, uh, as we look at historical documents, for having low morals. You know those islanders. I don't know what it is, you know. Is it the water? Is it the beach? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's unfair. I know. That's unfair. I know. Not all islanders are like that. Certainly not. No. But these were, all right? So low morals. Uh, so he's drawn a contrast, you know? Unlike the folks that you grew up among and came out of now through Christ and live around you, God is not a liar. One writer pointed out the Cretans were such notorious liars that the Greek language coined a word, and I don't know how to say it. It's K-R-E-T-I-D-Z-O. How would you say that, Thomas? K-R-E-T-I-D-Z-O. Okay. Kerizo. Thank you, my Greek scholar over there. <laughs> I love having him around. Honestly, I do. Uh, they coined that word. It, it basically meant to play the Cretan, and it meant to lie. <laughs> yeah. So in stark contrast to the Cretans, and for that matter, mankind, uh, God always speaks the truth. God does not and cannot lie. And we see that even in Numbers twenty three nineteen, and certainly other places as well. Also notice that this promise of eternal life for God's elect was made, notice this, Paul says, before the ages began. Before the ages began. This is some deep stuff, honestly. Or before time began would be another way to say that. In other words, before Genesis 1.1. Before the earth and time as we know it existed, before man was created. Before there was a universe. Before there was matter. This promise was made. It was made in eternity. Now, I found this fascinating as I was doing my studies. One pastor, he is thinking about the promise, but there's also another promise in relation to this promise. I want you to just consider this this morning. It's just fascinating as we think about this promise that was made in eternity past. Well, who, who would be there for that? Well, you have the triune Godhead, yeah? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in relationship, in perfect loving relationship. A promise was made, a promise of eternal life. Eternal life for who? Eternal life for who? A redeemed people. Let me read this to you. God reiterated his plan of salvation and eternal life, as we see, to such godly men as Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets. But the original promise was made and ratified in eternity past, before any of those people were around. Then the writer goes on to say, the Father showed his perfect love to the Son, John 17, 23, and 24, and 26, by promising him a redeemed humanity who would serve and glorify him forever. The Son's role was to be the sacrifice for the sins of the elect so that they could be redeemed and brought to glory. Before God provided the marvelous promise of forgiveness 
and heaven to sinful mankind, he had given a promise to his beloved son. That is the promise of which Jesus reminded the father in his prayer on our behalf. When he said, father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. That's John 17, 24. A year or so earlier in Jesus's ministry, Jesus affirmed that promise of the gift of redeemed souls when he publicly proclaimed all that the father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For this is the will of my father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 37 and 40. The writer goes on to say, The pastor, one glorious day in eternity future, when our Lord Jesus has received the full promise of the Father to him, and all the saved are glorified and made like Jesus. Amen. To serve and praise him forever in the kingdom. The son, in a gesture of divine love, will give everything back to the father. Paul records that future moment. Quote, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him that God may be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And then he says this, and this is where I want your mind to just appreciate, absorb, and be blown. He says, it is astonishing, and it is, to consider that those who are redeemed are caught up in this magnificent, eternal covenant that two members of the Godhead have made with each other in order to demonstrate the infinite scope of their love for each other. Christianity is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's such a blessing to be part of the body of Christ, to be his, to have been redeemed. To have been chosen and called out from darkness. Glory in it, beloved. Glory in it. Before time even began, before there was an earth, there was a promise made. And then Titus 1.3. And at the proper time, manifested in his word, through the preaching which, which, with which, sorry, I have been trusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, you can leave that up just for a moment, brother. And at the proper time, manifested. You'll notice it says in his word. That's how the ESV translates it. 
I believe it would be better, other translations have it, or manifested his word. They don't have the word in there. And at the proper time, manifested his word. His word being his message, God's message. One translation puts it this way, or at the proper time, he has made his message evident, God's message. That message being made evident or manifested or revealed through the preaching, I'll get to that in a second, with which Paul, that's I there, had been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So concerning that, one writer says, it was eternal life that God promised in eternity past, but with this verse, verse 3, Paul makes a subtle but important change in the subject of the verb. It was not eternal life that is declared to be made evident, but that God himself has made his message evident, the message that promises eternal life in the person of his son. That's his message that Paul was making evident in his proclamation. God, according to his perfect timing, has made his message evident. That is the message that promises eternal life in the person of his son. That's the only place you can find it. Interesting that he says it was according to proper timing. We would understand that his perfect timing at the proper time. That's a fascinating discussion in and of itself. That at this time in history is when Christ came into the world when Christ would live out his perfect and righteous life, when Christ would go according to the divine plan of God to the cross and die there for all those God had chosen to be his. Raised from the dead, while he was on earth, called men among themselves and afterwards called Paul to himself to be his apostles, to make the message of Christ known, dying and resurrecting again and coming again, right? All that time, at that time in history, he did this. It's just interesting. At that time in history, as it's pointed out, there was the existence, if you just look through world history, there was the existence at that time of Roman peace, right? None of of this happened by accident. None of it. Rome had complete rule and control, and there was a peace. Instead of constant warring and battles, Rome ruled with an iron fist. But that peace then enabled uh, the spread of the gospel throughout the world at that time. Beyond that, there were Roman roads. Beyond that, there was a common language at that time, Greek, which the New Testament was written into, New Testament, Greek. And that allowed the gospel to go forth in a very powerful way. You think that happened by accident? And at the proper time, verse 3, it says, manifested his word, or in his word as the ESV has it, but I would say manifested his word or his message. And Paul says, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So the preaching there, as he says, it's not the actual act of preaching. You could, you could say that's proclamation. You could translate it that way. That's how the New American Standard Bible translates it. Through the proclamation, it's a noun. It's, it's the message, through the gospel message, Paul is saying. I'm making known the message of eternal life through Christ, through the gospel message that I've been commanded to take into the world. 
And specifically, as you know, he was commanded by Christ to make it known to the entire world, the Gentiles, right, as well. The Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Hey, are you a Gentile this morning? You should be thanking Paul. If you're a saved Gentile, that is. Huh? Thank you, Paul, for your faithfulness to this call. Paul said he had been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Entrusted. Entrusted. What do you think of when you think of entrusted? If I entrust you with something, if I entrust you with my child, right? What am I doing? What's it say about my child? If I use that word, I'm entrusting you with my child. Huh? Important? Yes. Very valuable. I entrust you with something that's valuable, very valuable, right? And then there's an expectation on my part and your part, if you receive this, that you're going to take care of it as I have asked you to, how, how I would expect you to, yeah? And so that's how the Apostle Paul saw the ministry of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. He's been entrusted with it. It's very important. Beloved, most important. The most important. And he needs to take care of it and care for it, not by putting it in a safe and hiding it away. Huh? I might do that with gold or silver. Probably not a child, but... Not the gospel, right? To be entrusted with the gospel, to understand it rightly and understand what God would have us do with it, to care for it appropriately, would be to make it known, which is exactly what Paul was doing. Scream it from the rooftops. And of course, that's abrasive, embrace, you know, really. So we don't literally mean that, but you get the idea. Make it known. One writer pointing out this idea that he'd been trusted with this by the command of God our Savior, he's no doubt has in mind, he doesn't say here, but he no doubt has in mind the charge given to him after his conversion on the road to Damascus. You remember the Lord met him there? The risen Lord, the glorified Lord met him there? There he was appointed to take the message of Christ to the Gentile world, to make it known to all the nations. This was never just going to be for the nation of Israel. This was intended to be for all the world, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would be made part of the people of God and given to the Lord Jesus Christ as his church, as his people. One writer adds this, this, and this is for us now, this God-given trust to proclaim the message is not a take-it-or-leave-it matter for the Christian. In other words, I, I could do it or not do it. It doesn't really matter. You know, I have it, but I, do I need to do anything with it? He goes on to say, it was not an option for Paul, nor is it to be an option for us. The Great Commission to make disciples is a trust given by the Savior to all believers through the disciples. May we not forget that it is according to God's command one that has application to all of us. So just remember, as Christ was there giving command, the Lord Jesus to Paul, that included as he took the message out and made disciples of Christ, led people to him and trained them and instructed them in the knowledge of God that leads to godliness, that included, that instruction included, now you are to do what I am doing. 
making him known that others in this world will hear and believe and begin to follow him and repeat the process again until all the elect under heaven become followers of Christ. So if you are a follower of Christ, that command is through that process to us as well to make the Lord Jesus known. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? And, you know, these kind of things, sometimes we think, you know, oh, you know what, I'm going to go do that. Like, I'll have a moment in time where I'm going to go make Jesus known. And that's fine, you know, like I'm going to go out on an evangelistic campaign, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go hit up the marketplace and hand out tracts or tell people, Jesus is Lord and you need to be saved. And that's fine. Great. Do it. Great. But more often, I think the natural way this happens is just through the process of, you know people, that don't know Jesus. Yeah? I know people who don't know Jesus. I've told you before, I don't think they're at Foothill because that's where I work during the week. I think most of them know Jesus. But you, that was a joke, guys, but you probably work with people who don't know Jesus. I know Thomas knows Jesus. I am pretty certain of that. He knows Greek. Come on. Uh... You know people who don't know Jesus. Beloved, the elect exist. It's not over yet because God hasn't wrapped it all up yet. That's why we're still here. For the sake of the elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. We're growing in it and we're proclaiming him who has rescued us and redeemed us and saved us and is conforming us to his image. That's our business. As we go about our business, that is to be our business. In our places of work, you know, I know I sound like a broken record, but I keep saying it because the scriptures keep saying it because that's what we need to keep saying. We need to keep being encouraged and instructed and exhorted to that end because that's what God would have for us. I don't, care what else, I don't care what else happens. I don't care if the president gets impeached. I don't care if Russia launches a nuclear weapon. Not that I don't care. Don't get me wrong. I don't want that to happen, those kind of things. They're disruptive. I get it. But I don't, it doesn't matter. We just keep on doing what we have been called to do, and this is what we've been called to do. So if I have to do it in a bomb shelter, if I have to do it with total chaos, if I have to do it with an AR-15 in my hand, I'm joking. (laughs) I'm joking. Goodness, you guys. You just do it. That's it. And if you're doing that, you can be at peace and praising the Lord. Because what else is there? This is all going up in a big ball of smoke eventually. For the sake of the elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, this is why I am serving you, God, and I glory in it. Yeah? And, of course, he finishes with this common phrase here at the end, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. I think my true child in a common faith, that again just uh, establishes Titus's authority to speak there. Paul has left and left Titus behind. This letter is now available in Titus's hands. As I said to you, he can say, this is from Paul. And Paul is saying, listen, Titus and I are like this. We have a common faith. What he communicates is what I believe. Of course, he got it from me, you know. So 
We're on the same page, right? So it's his way of endorsing Titus again to Titus, my true child, my genuine child in common faith. And then he says, and this is a very standard grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. But I just, I found this and I just thought I would share it with you. One writer said, grace and peace was Paul's common greeting. You, again, you'll find them, all right? But it's always more than a greeting. I've mentioned that to you before. I want to leave you with this. Grace sums up the gospel as opposed to all world religions. Okay? That's what makes Christianity unique. If you don't understand that question, ask someone. Or what I just said, please talk to somebody here. Or talk to us. Grace is what makes Christianity unique from all the other religions of the world. The grace of God. Every religion apart from the gospel is based on human merit and works. You earn your way into heaven. That's not grace. And it's not even possible. And yet religion keeps promoting it. Religions of the world. The gospel alone rests on God's unmerited favor to sinners who deserve his wrath. Grace. We are saved by grace. The gospel alone. The gospel alone. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel alone results in peace with God. Grace and peace. There is no other way to achieve peace with God apart from Christ. Faith in him. Belief in him, trust in him. As Paul wrote Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to him we pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. I'm looking forward to this letter and thankful for the time that we've had this morning. And Father, as we looked at these, this section, there are Items here that are certainly might challenge our hearts or might, we might be convicted by. Father, I pray that you do your convicting. Do your challenging of our hearts, Father. We know certainly we need it. Lord, we are so grateful for the rich truths that we read here. Just thinking to be part of this incredible plan of yours, this divine plan, this wise plan, the sovereign plan of yours, determined before there was even anything here in eternity past, making a promise to your son to redeem a people unto yourself and give to him. Father, we are blessed people if we know Jesus Christ, and, and we do, and we're so grateful. But Father, I... I would imagine there are some here who have no relationship with your son, not a saving relationship. They know of him. They do not know him. They know of him. They are not following him. They are not trusting in him. They are not in love with Jesus. They know of him only by name. They know maybe some things about him, but they are not turned from sin and given their lives to him. Father, I pray for them right now, that in their hearts, in their minds, that you would do that saving work, Father. That you would accomplish that thing that only you can accomplish, that you would break that rebellion. You would open their eyes, unstop their ears, that they might hear for the first time, hear that they need a Savior, and there is only one. 
And his name is Jesus Christ. And your word is clear. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, call in faith, repenting of their sin, whosoever shall call, shall be saved. Father, I pray that they would heed those words and they would come to the cross and there find salvation, there find grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, and there find what they so desperately need, what every sinner so desperately needs, peace with their creator. We ask all this in Jesus' name.